Lamentations is, as I said in the first session, a book that is little known and often neglected. Many people know the stories of books like Genesis and Exodus and the stories about King David and 1st and 2nd Samuel. A lot of people are familiar with the words of certain psalms or famous passages of books like Amos and Isaiah. But few people are familiar with Lamentations. Well, at least that's mostly true, because there is one passage from the book that's fairly wide known among Christians. It's a passage that comes from the third chapter, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Does that sound familiar to you? If so, it's probably because those verses are the inspiration for the chorus of a popular and beloved hymn written by the American Methodist Thomas Chisholm, a hymn entitled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. If you're familiar with this hymn, you'll know how uplifting and how comforting its lyrics are, and it may come as a bit of a surprise to realize that those lyrics are based on the Book of Lamentations. Because as we've already seen in this study, Lamentations is not exactly a cheerful book. It's a book that's filled with grief and anger and lament. Not exactly the place where you'd expect to find inspiration for a song as uplifting as great is thy faithfulness. And yet, there it is, right there in the middle of chapter 3, following on the heels of some of the bleakest expressions of sorrow that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. You've got these hopeful words, confident words, words about the steadfast love of the Lord and His faithfulness and how His mercies are new every morning. The question is, why? Why does the author of these poems put in these words? How can he move from despair to hope? What exactly happens to turn his sorrowful dirge into a song of praise? And how can we learn from his example as we encounter pain and loss in our own lives? Those are the questions we'll be focusing on as we turn our attention to the third chapter of the book of Lamentations in this session which I've titled, Hope in the Ruins. Uh, from the very first verse of this chapter, it's clear that something has changed. For the past two chapters, the author has been kind of going back and forth between offering a third-person report of the suffering of Jerusalem and then allowing the people of Jerusalem to speak for themselves with this voice, this single female voice that he uses representing the city. But then in chapter 3, he takes a different approach. Now he's not just reporting on the suffering of Jerusalem. Now he himself begins to talk about his own suffering. And just like in the previous chapter, he identifies God as the one who has brought his suffering about. In fact, for the first 18 verses of this chapter, it's pretty much all we hear. 
horribly painful testimony of suffering at the hands of God. It is God, he says, who has broken his bones and let his body waste away. God, he says, has treated him like a cruel jailer. God has imprisoned him and chained him and ignored his pleas for help and blocked any way of escape. God, he says, is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. The, the images that come are coming so thick and fast, it's, it's hard to even keep track of them. And at one moment, God is a jailer, and the next, he's a predator. And then he's like an enemy warrior shooting arrows. But you don't have to keep track of all these metaphors to, to understand what they mean. This man has experienced terrible loss, terrible suffering, so great that he has come to believe that God himself is against him. And maybe this should come as no great surprise. After all, as the, as the 17th century English theologian John Owen once said, our experiences of pain and loss often lead us to hard thoughts about God. And that's true for even the most knowledgeable and sincere of Christians. Take C.S. Lewis, for instance, whom I've already mentioned. In the first session, I, I mentioned that that book that he wrote, chronicling his grief after the death of his wife. And in that book, he says some pretty shocking things about God. Like when, for instance, he says, if God's goodness is inconsistent with hurting us, then either God is not good or there is no God. For in the only life we know, he hurts us beyond our worst fears and beyond all we can imagine. And then if that's not bad enough, just a few pages later, he writes, what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers Joy and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking. Hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle. Time after time, when God seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. Those are the words of a man whose pain has led him to entertain hard thoughts about God and has driven him to despair. And that's exactly what we hear in the painful words of this opening section of Lamentations chapter 3. The author has experienced excruciating pain, so much that it's led him to abandon all hope. As he puts it in verses 17 and 18, in what is perhaps the most depressing statement of this entire book, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Uh, those words are not meant to communicate to us some kind of eternal theological truth. 
The poet's not making a claim about whether or not hope is possible for a person in the midst of suffering. No, what he's doing, just like what C.S. Lewis was doing, is giving us a, a clear and honest and unvarnished window into the despair that he feels. Joy and happiness may be possible, but at this point, he can't even remember what happiness feels like. He doesn't even know what to hope for. Now, maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you too have felt this kind of hopelessness, what, what the mystic writer St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. And if so, it may be of some comfort to know that you're not the only one who has felt despair. Even the writers of Scripture have known what hopelessness feels like. But what's most important in this chapter isn't the despair that the author feels. What's most important is what brings him out of it. In verse 19, he begins to talk about remembering, about what it is that occupies his memory. And at first, it seems that the only thing he can remember is the pain and the suffering he's endured. My soul continually remembers it, he says, and is bowed down within me. But then something changes. Then all of a sudden he begins to remember something else. But this I call to mind, he says, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. It's hard to overstate just how radical of a shift this is. In the time that it takes to utter just a couple sentences, he has somehow gone from forgetting what happiness even is and feeling as if he has no hope whatsoever to all of a sudden rejoicing in the love and faithfulness of God and saying that his hope is in the Lord. Why has he done this? How has he done this? Nothing about his circumstances has changed. What was taken from him has not been restored. And yet all of a sudden, his perspective on it seems to have changed entirely. So much so that this man can spend the rest of the chapter offering words of comfort and consolation to all of the distraught citizens of Jerusalem and then leading them as they turn to God in prayer. So what has brought about this change? Well, like I said, it has to do with remembering. Starting in verse 21, he, he remembers something. He remembers what he calls the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then these words undoubtedly sound very familiar to you. Steadfast love is a, it's a common translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which can also be translated as, as loving kindness or loyal love. It's a word that's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament to describe the generosity that people show, but mostly to describe God's character and his relationship with his people. In Exodus chapter 34, for instance, God 
describes himself to Moses as a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the book of Ezra, when when God brings the people of Israel back from exile and enables them to rebuild the temple, they celebrate by recalling the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. And all throughout the Psalter, no matter what condition the psalmist is in, we continually hear about the steadfast love of the Lord. In fact, one psalm, Psalm 136, consists of 26 verses filled with all kinds of different memories of what God has done, each of them calling to mind what God has done, and each of them concluding with the same refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. Remembering the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, something you find all throughout the Bible. In fact, you could say that's, that's actually just what the Bible is. It's one long sustained attempt to remember God's love and faithfulness. And now once again, right in the middle of Lamentations, right in the middle of one of the worst moments of despair that you could possibly imagine, this man once again remembers, calls to mind the love and faithfulness of God. Of course, that does nothing really to change his circumstances nor does it change the circumstances of the Jewish people. Jerusalem still lies in ruins. They still know that God is the one who is behind their suffering. But now, now God no longer seems like a cruel jailer or violent enemy because now they remember who he really is. Now they remember how he has been kind and faithful to them in the past. So now, even as they sit in the ruins, now they can say with the poet, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I began by referring to a well-known 19th century hymn. And I'd like to conclude by mentioning one more called When Peace Like a River. You're probably familiar with this hymn and with the words of its comforting refrain, it is well, it is well with my soul. But you may not be familiar with the story behind it. This hymn was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a successful American businessman and he was a a friend of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. Now Horatio lost a vast majority of his wealth and investments when an enormous fire destroyed much of the city of Chicago in the year 1871. And then two years later, Horatio and his wife, they planned a trip to Europe. But at the last minute, he was detained and his wife and four daughters had to go ahead of him. And while they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the steamship they were traveling on was struck by another vessel. And it sank, and all four of his daughters died at sea. Now, Horatio only learned this when he received a a two-word telegram sent from England from his wife, Anna. Two-word telegram which read, saved alone. And it was actually on the trip 
across the Atlantic to join Anna was right as he crossed over the patch of sea where his four daughters had drowned. That's where he sat down and composed that hymn. And once you understand the circumstances, it seems outrageous, even absurd, that he could write a hymn with the refrain, it is well with my soul. But he did, not because his grief was any less intense, not because the death of his daughters did not continue to weigh on his heart and mind, but because he did exactly what this poet did. Horatio called to mind the love and faithfulness of the Lord. He remembered how Christ had proven his love and how he had promised to once again return and set everything right. And because of that, Horatio Spafford found hope amidst the ruins. Because of that, he could say, not my suffering has vanished, not I no longer grieve, not even I feel happy once again. What he could say was, it is well, it is well with my soul. Thank you.